A Fortunate Grandchild by Miss Reed My Two Grandmothers I was lucky with my grandmothers. Both Grandma Reed and Grandma Schaefe were dears. I was not so lucky with grandfathers. One had died years before I was born, and Thomas Smith Schaefe was as daunting to a child as his jolly wife was welcoming. Speaking generally, it seems to me that grandmothers have a very special place in the affections of young children, not obliged as parents are to provide food, shelter, protection, advice, and discipline, day in and day out, they can afford to be much more easygoing. The unexpected present, the extra outing, the little treat of a favorite meal prepared especially to delight the child, and above all, the time to listen to youthful outpourings, all make a grandmother a loved ally. It is hardly surprising that the bond between grandmother and grandchild is often stronger than between parent and child. My own two grandmothers were alike in the affection they so freely bestowed, and the love they inspired. They were quite different in looks. One small and dark, the other large, very large, with curly white hair. One had borne two children and the other four. Grandma Reed was a widow of a Deptford builder. Grandma Shafe's husband, Tom, was a retired post office worker. More of him later. For although he does not play a large role in this account of my two grandmothers, he nevertheless made his presence felt at 17 New Pier Street, Walton-on-Nays, where they lived when he had retired. But it is Grandma Reed of 267 Heather Green Lane, Lewisham, that I remember most vividly when I was a very young child, and I will describe her, her family, and her home first. Grandma Reed, Sarah Ann Reed, 1846-1922 to She was my mother's mother and must have been nearly 70 when I first became conscious of her in about 1915. At that time, my father was serving in France with H. Battery of the Royal Horse Artillery, and my mother was carrying on his job as an insurance agent. My elder sister and I were left with Grandma Reed, who lived nearby for most of the day. She was small and neat, with a very smooth skin and dark hair parted in the middle and taken back between her ears into a bun. Her hair remained dark and glossy until her death at seventy-six. It was generally believed that she had a Portuguese forebearer, and her looks would certainly bear this out. She dressed well. Her frocks were of dark silk, usually brown or black, trimmed with lace and made with a high neck. She was particularly fond of prettily trimmed bonnets worn tied under the chin with ribbons. As children, we often gave her bonnet trimmings of feathers or velvet for her birthday or Christmas presents. One particular bonnet I remember clearly, trimmed with velvet pansies of different colors, which framed her face delightedly and made me admire her. An older cousin of mine remembers her as a very happy lady. She had a nice smile, and her eyes smiled too. That, too, is how I remember her. She was a wonderful companion to young children, cheerful, sprightly, and not over-anxious, as so many adults are, about the niceties of correct behavior or the awful consequences of such 
daring feats as jumping off low walls or down the conservatory steps. Having had twelve children of her own, she was probably past worrying over much. She indulged me in small ways, and I loved her for it. During that war, food supplies were extremely short, especially in London. My mother had instilled in us that we were never to ask for sweets or anything with sugar in it because people had so little. My grandmother, however, would frequently spread butter, or more probably margarine in those dark days, on half of a slice of bread, and then scatter brown sugar on it. I watched greedily as she cut it into fingers, which I soon demolished. I knew as well as she did that this activity was only undertaken when we were alone and I had enough sense, even at three, to keep our secret. Twice a week, Grandma Reed left her house to walk a few hundred yards to a small cinema. She adored films, black and white and silent, of course, and rarely missed one. They were changed twice a week, and Grandma returned from her outing much refreshed. Sometimes she was accompanied by one of my aunts or a cousin, but she was perfectly happy to go alone. Charlie Chaplin, Pearl White, Mary Pickford, and all the rest provided her with exciting enough company. St. Swithin's Church, a little farther along the road, was the family's parish church. I cannot remember if my grandmother was a regular member of the congregation, but my two aunts, Rose and Jess, certainly were. And clergymen, choir boys, and other church members often came back after the service to 267 Hither Green Lane for refreshments and to sing around the piano in Grandmother's drawing room. My sister, three years older than I am, was as bored as I was on these occasions, and it was she who showed me how delightful it was to creep behind the piano and sit there among piles of sheet music in comparative peace. Of the twelve children born to my grandmother, eight survived, which was not a bad percentage in those days. The date of her marriage I do not know, but probably about the mid-sixties of the last century. She told her children that her wedding dress was much admired, and that she wore an aerophane bonnet with gooseberries on it. What aerophane was, nobody knew. Queen Victoria was on the throne from the time of Grandma's birth until she was in her fifties. It was not a very healthy time for babies or their mothers, and I suppose that to have eight out of twelve living to maturity was not bad going. The first child, my Uncle George, I never knew. He had immigrated to Australia, married there, and had children, one of whom was called Harlan. As this was also the name of a hair tonic of the time, the family found it an odd choice. I don't think Grandma heard from him very often. My aunts Liz and Nell were married with children, and my mother, the last but one of, his, of this long family, had produced my sister Lil and me. Another sister, Betty, was born much later, in 1927. Of the remaining boys, my uncle Chris was married, but he and my aunt Maud were childless. The three unmarried children, my aunt Jess, aunt Rose, and uncle Harry, lived at home with my grandmother, so that the house was always busy, and there always seemed to be someone free to take an interest in one's pleasures. 
I knew all about Beatrix Potter's stories before I started school, thanks to one of the other aunts who always seemed to be able to spare time to read them to us. In the great cupboard under the kitchen dresser, Grandma had two wooden grooved butter pats, and these she would give me with a large lump of plasticine. Bashing happily, I tried to emulate the deft strokes of the grocer at the local home and colonial stores who slapped up pounds of butter and margarine on a marble slab, ending up with a beautiful stripe oblongs. Mine were less symmetrical, and the din must have been prodigious, but I cannot remember anyone objecting in that indulgent household. Another object which I admired in the kitchen was a pincushion in the shape of a Chinese doll. It had a round head with pigtail, and its stuffed body was made of dark red satin. It was occasionally lifted down from its peg by the mantelpiece for me to hold, but I was not allowed to play with it in case the pins and needles would scratch me. No doubt the aunts and grandma also envisaged me swallowing some. In any case, after a brief period of admiration, it was returned to safety. Never did I feel that I was a nuisance, as I must have been quite often, and looking back I realized that it was Aunt Jess who bore the brunt of my relentless attentions. She deserves a few pages to herself. Aunt Jess my Aunt Jess, the youngest of the brood, was virtually housekeeper and general dog's body. I loved her dearly. She was small in stature, rather skinny, and had dark hair, which she frizzed with her hair tongs heated in the fishtail flame of the gas bracket in the bedroom. I watched this operation with great interest. The smell of singed hair was alarming. Would Aunt Jess go up in smoke? Nevertheless, I much admired the semi-afro fringe which resulted. When she took off her gold pince-nez, pince-nez are glasses, her eyes looked weak and as though they belonged to someone else. The look frightened me as much as the dreadful concentration look of my mother as she threaded a needle. Perhaps it was the complete withdrawal into another realm which shook me. I only know that I was relieved when Aunt Jess replaced her glasses, which made a cruel red indentation on each side of her slightly snubbed nose, and my mother succeeded in threading the needle and both returned to me. Aunt Jess had been trained as dressmaker, and at the top of the house was her small workroom. Here there were the most fascinating objects. A large model figure, encased in shiny satin, dominated the room. From the hips down was a cage, but above that the great swelling bust billowed out regally from the wasp waist. The whole thing was topped by a shiny wooden knob where the neck should be, but Aunt Jess referred to this in an inanimate companion as Arabella, and always seemed to be hovering around her. Aunt Jess also had the miniature clothes which she had made when she had learnt her craft. These miracles of feather stitching, tucking, hemming, smocking, and so on, were mounted on cardboard, and we were not allowed to touch them. 
There was a long workbench covered in black oilcloth, much scratched by scissors, pins, and other tools of the trade. I remember adding to the scars by troundling an object with a little wheel up and down the surface. It left a fascinating row of pinpricks, but a slap on the hand put a stop to this pleasant pastime. Of course, there were drifts of tissue paper patterns and transfers and blueprints on flimsy paper depicting unlikely flowers, garlands, and geometrical edgings. There was also a delicate substance called, I believe, tailor's chalk, which was flat and shiny and used for making marking material. Aunt Jess would give me a broken piece. If licked, it clung to one's lips rather disconcertingly. It drew beautifully, though, on pieces of brown paper spread flat on kitchen floor, ready for my artistic efforts later in the day. In this minute room, Aunt Jess fitted her client's clothes. I don't know if she had many customers, but she certainly had very little time for this particular pursuit. She did most of the cooking, house cleaning, and laundry work, for I cannot remember any help in the house, and it was a fairly large one to keep clean. She also made a good many clothes for the family. I can remember several of the things she made for us as children. My sister and I were resplendent in black and white check coats with black velvet collars at one stage. I had a white muff on cord round my neck with this rig out. Whether Lil also sported one, I cannot recall, but if she objected, I have no doubt she was spared. She was a strong-minded child. I wonder now how Aunt Jess could have done such fine work, for her hands were always rough and chapped from housework. The cleaning material of some sixty-odd years ago were pretty fierce. Soda, monkey brand, strong yellow soap, cut in thick chunks from a long, heavy bar of the stuff, using the kitchen coal shovel to get plenty of purchase on it, hearthstone for the doorsteps, and brasso for the knockers, fingers, plates, and doorknobs, all took their toll on human skin, and a little pond's cold cream was probably all that Aunt Jess's hard-working hands ever received. No doubt she was too whacked at night even to bother with it. Looking back, I wonder that Aunt Jess never married. It is true that she was not a very beautiful woman, but many plain women have found husbands. She had a sweet disposition and was unfailingly kind. When some years later my mother was seriously ill, it was Aunt Jess who came to hold the fort. When my younger sister was born, it was Aunt Jess who ran the house. She never seemed to sit down and have a real rest. I used to dog her footsteps up the interminable flights of stairs or down into the terrifying cellar which ran beneath the hall and out under the front garden path. Near the cellar door was a small cupboard where newspapers were stored for lightning fires, for lighting fires, together with bundles of kindling wood. One day, close at Aunt Jess's heels, I watched her pulling out paper and wood, hurrying as usual, puffing slightly as she rushed from one job to the next. 
when she dropped her armful with a dreadful squeal, yelping, A mouse! A mouse! Shuddering, she fled to the kitchen. I looked into the murk of the paper cupboard, but the mouse had vanished. Disappointed, I returned to Aunt Jess. Now I am ashamed to say I reacted with as much horror to an intruding mouse as Aunt Jess did then. Although she was always busy, she found time to read. As I have said, much delectable works as the tale of Mrs. Tittlemouse and the tale of Benjamin Bunny to us, and I can remember a favorite game of mine which she played with me while she was ironing or stirring a pot on the kitchen range. The game was simple, called chopping. Armed with a basket, I asked my busy aunt for such thing as sunlight, soap, cocoa, a loaf of bread, and other such basic necessities which were still procurable in wartime. With a wave of one free hand, she would deposit the invisible goods in my basket, and I would pay her with bone counters. The delicious climax came when I requested a farthing's worth of currants. At this, my indulgent aunt would seize her task for a moment and reach up a high kitchen shelf where stood a row of metal canisters. From one, she shook into my fat palm a few precious currants. I handed over my counter farthing, and the game ended in blissful nibbling. I realize now how much Aunt Jess meant to me and the household at 267 Heather Green Lane. She was Grandma Reed's right hand. For the other two unmarried inhabitants, Aunt Rose and Uncle Harry, were out at work, and an amazing good aunt to the many children of the family who came to stay. Aunt Rose My Aunt Rose must have been some ten or more years older than Aunt Jess and was quite a different kettle of fish. Grandma Reed seemed to defer rather more to Aunt Rose's judgment than to Aunt Jess's. Aunt Rose was small and dark, but plumper and decidedly more handsome than Aunt Jess. She had masses of glossy dark brown hair, always beautifully dressed, a fine complexion, very bright dark eyes like her mother's. She dressed well and wore a good many brooches and beads. She taught at Innersdale School nearby, and I have no doubt, knowing now something of the qualities needed to make a sound infant's teacher, that Aunt Rose was an exceptionally competent one. Her manner was motherly, but brisk and firm. Her standards of behavior were high, and she would have brooked no laziness. She was blessed, too, with some accomplishments most needed for infant work. She was artistic and very skilled with her hands. Grandma's drawing room had several of her watercolors on the walls, and she worked hard at such ploys as pin painting, crochet, and something called, I believe, pastelino work. This latter involved painting such objects as kingfishers perched on bulrushes or sprays of flowers onto black velvet or satin, and then spraying them with minute glassy balls. The result was a shiny picture, and many a cushion cover, table runner, and evening bag were pressed upon reluctant recipients. My sister and I, as we grew older, deplored Aunt Rose's taste and her industry, and were particularly difficult about some velvet hair bands 
ornamented with roses which my mother insisted on our wearing at least once to please her older sister she must have found great consolation in such projects as pasting pictures on screen book jackets and making calendars christmas and easter cards paper windmills artificial flowers and all the other endless forms of handwork undertaken in infant classes there must be many of her pupils who remember Aunt Rose with affection and owe their basic grounding in handwork, reading, writing, and arithmetic to her sound teaching. She was a determined woman. Later I heard just how tenacious she had persisted in taking up her teaching career. Evidently she had served several years as a pupil teacher before deciding that she was qualified as a certified teacher. For this, she needed to take a teacher's training course. In those days, this needed money, which Aunt Rose did not have. Grandma Reed, although approving of Rose's ambition, simply had no idea how to set about helping her. With accommodating courage, Aunt Rose went to an uncle of hers, who was rather better off than the rest of the family, and put the problem to him. He nobly stumped up. Aunt Rose promised to repay him as soon as she had a teaching job, and before long she was a student at Brighton Training College, where I have no doubt she did extremely well. It was Aunt Rose who took me first to school with her. This must have been in 1917 on April 6th, on April 16th, as I know that my fourth birthday was the next day. My clever elder sister was already steaming ahead on the second floor of the great LCC building in the big girl's department. I was deposited in the baby's class, not Aunt Rose's, and given a box of china beads to thread, whilst admiring the magnificent rocking horse and making plans for an early ride. My hopes were dashed by the afternoon when it was discovered I could read. I was wrenched from my beads and the rocking horse and pushed up one standard where I had to work quite hard. Aunt Rose was delighted. I was not. Although Grandma Reed was undoubtedly the head of her household, and she was deferred to by all those in it, I have no doubt that Aunt Rose played a large part in its running. She had plenty of business sense, and would have been capable of coping with household accounts and such matters as insurance, leases, rates, and other domestic financial affairs. I suspect, too, that her salary was a major part of the family's income. She would see that it was wisely spent. Not that she was mean. Although she dressed well and always appeared with good shoes, handbags, and hats, she was generous with her presents to her nieces and nephews, and gave us all some splendid books, interspersed, of course, with the regrettable hairbands, belts, and collars of her own making. I still use Fairy Tales from Shakespeare by Charles and Mary Lamb, published by Ward Locke, and ablaze with beautiful colored plates and inscribed by Aunt Rose's hand, To my dear little Dora with love. It was a present for my ninth birthday. As well as spending her money on books for us, both she and Aunt Jess were generous in taking us to the theater as soon as we were old enough to enjoy it. We saw all the... Adelwich farce with Tom Walls and Ralph Lynn 
and Mary Brow of Blessed Memory, as well as Nono Nanette and other light musicals which appealed to my aunts. We were also taken to a lavishly produced version of A Midsummer's Night's Dream, complete with slowly breaking dawn, gauzy fairies, Mendelssohn's music, and the most ravishing costumes and sets. This was in the early 1920s and may have been the Max Reinhardt production. It certainly impressed us. Looking back, I can see that Aunt Rose's dominance in the household must have been irksome at times to her youngest sister, Aunt Jess. Grandma Reed, I imagine, was able to ignore or even be mildly amused by Rose's bossiness. Aunt Jess would have had to endure it rather than more directly, and some years later, after Grandma Reed's death, she and Uncle Harry, together with an older sister, Lizzie, set up house together, while Rose bought a comfortable house not far from Wither Green Lane, which she converted into two very pleasant flats, one for her of her own use and the other to let to well-vetted tenants. Aunt Rose was certainly the best-looking, best-dressed, and probably the most intelligent of Grandma's daughters. She never married, although she had a steady stream of admirers, and they remained devoted for many years. I will remember walking home with her after seeing the student prince, and remarking that it was a pity that she that he married the wrong girl in the end. The hero's sense of duty. I was about ten or at the time, and it seemed misplaced to me. Ah, said Aunt Rose, sighing heavily in the darkness. Life is like that. One has to put one's duty to others before one's own pleasures. And then followed several remarks which might have been construed as Aunt Rose's personal renunciation of marriage in order to maintain the household at 267. But there again, it may just have been the aftermath of seeing the student prince late one night at the Hippodrome. As far as I can judge at that distance of time, she took her religion, Orthodox Church of England, very seriously. She went regularly to St. Swithin's Church, and I have no doubt that much of her hand, of her handwork went into the appreciative channels of church bazaars. She also ran the Sunday school attended to this church, although one might have thought that she saw quite enough of young children during the rest of the week. She organized the session assembly. Simple hymns and prayers alternated with handwork, making Moses in plasticine, for instance, to put into a carefully woven cradle and hidden among the dried sticks erected in a sandy, a sandy tray. There was quite a bit of marching. I remember correctly when we put our collection money into the box whilst we sang, see the farthings dropping, listen as they fall, or something very similar. The whole pro program was conducted with great skill and gusto by Aunt Rose, and I think she played the piano as well. Later, she and a friend, Miss Hetty Lee, collaborated on a useful manual for Sunday school teachers called Little Children of the Church, which incorporated these ideas and gave appropriate lessons and particular work for every Sunday in the year, thus giving small children a basic understanding of the great church festivals and the pattern of Christian year. It was in print for many years. 
Aunt Rose's organizing ability was also to the fore in helping to arrange the mammoth fancy dress party which was held annually at Goldsmiths College, New Cross. I suppose it was an aid of some deserving cause. My sister and I, never great ones for pleasure in mass, rather dreaded these occasions when we were tricked out as shepherdesses or nursery rhyme characters in costumes made by my hard-pressed Aunt Jess. I heartily loathed all my regalia on these occasions and pined to go as a powder puff with a fetching little round hat trimmed with swan down, in common with dozens of other six-year-olds, but I never attained this ambition. The nadir of the evening in our eyes was the grand parade, when we marched two by two round and round the enormous hall, surveyed by fond parents and the judges on the stage. Aunt Rose, aglow with pearls and satin, beamed proudly upon us as we passed. The refreshments were always superb, and I rather think we were all given a present at the end of the evening. Even so, we were jolly glad it was over for another year. A certain amount of entertaining was done under Grandma Reed's roof, and I think Aunt Rose instigated much of it. I can remember a number of young soldiers, usually connected in some way with St. Swithin's enjoying tea there. Sometimes one of the two of the clergy came in 267, and a frequent visitor was an old sailor called Maskell, who had been with Peary on his Arctic expedition early in the century. I imagine that some of Aunt Rose's teaching colleagues also visited the house, but I do not remember seeing them. No doubt I was then abed. The journey to school, at least in the early days, always seemed to have had Aunt Rose as guardian angel. I was glad of this for several reasons. Quite often we saw the cat's meat man, who drove a little gig in which were numberless wooden skewers thread with slices of cooked horse meat. He had a raucous voice to advertise his wares, and cat owners would run out with their pennies. Naturally, the cats came, too, when they heard the welcome cries. I adored cats and still do, and for some unaccountable reason, I thought a cat meets man collected the cats, killed and cooked them, and loaded his wooden skewers so that he could entice more to of their brother's gruesome feast. No doubt someone told me that the provender was horseflesh, and I had not listened or... More likely, I never confessed my awful anxieties on behalf of the trusting cats which followed the little cat, the little cart. It was good to have Aunt Rose's hand to hold. There was also a railway bridge across the road we traversed, and the rumbling of trains overhead terrified me. It was only a matter of time, I felt sure, before one fell through the bridge and engulfed us all in horrifying chaos. Quite a number of bombs fell in that part of London in the First World War, aiming for Woolrich Arsenal, said the Noalls. I certainly recall passing a great crater in St. Switham's churchyard after a night raid, and the piles of sandbags round the school walls to protect us from the blast. We were too young to be frightened much, but it was a comfort to have Aunt Rose's company. She remained the linchpin of the family for many years. 
No wedding, funeral, or other function was complete without Aunt Rose to the fore. Despite her little affectations, which irritated us inordinately as we grew into our teens, she was an admirable woman, hard-working, shrewd, and bountiful, bountifully fond of children and interested in everything. She long outlived her younger sisters and was in her eighties when she died. 